Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 34, 2 Kings chapter 22 continued. The clock's ticking for Judah. Closer and closer we get to that moment when Judah is going to join their Israelite brethren in exile. And the people of Judah are oblivious to it. They're reveling in the good times because the economy was looking up. They're in a time of relative peace. They have a good king who cares for their welfare. And Assyria has finally lost its grip on the Holy Land. You know, it's a lot like a day that we hear about in the book of Matthew. In Matthew 24, 37 through 39, it says this, For the Son of Man's coming will be just like it was in the days of Noah. Back then, before the flood, people went on eating and drinking, taking wives, becoming wives, right up until the day that Noah entered the ark. They didn't know what was happening until the flood came, swept them all away. It will be just like that when the Son of Man comes. Prophets have come and gone with their warnings from God that if Judah doesn't change their ways and remember who they are in him, he is going to turn them over to their enemies for judgment. But now the divine message is about to change in the most ominous way. The warning that Judah has grown so weary of hearing and has become immune to it is no longer to change or else. The new warning is to prepare for the coming disaster because now it's a certainty. The opportunity to change and to repent has come and gone. And therein lays a principle that every Christian and everyone who for some reason is still holding out against the Lord just a little longer needs to think long and hard about. It wasn't the people of Judah who decided for themselves what the timing might be or what the conditions might be that they would finally cross over some cosmic line of no return. It was the Lord who made that determination based on his own criteria and the people weren't aware when that moment of divine decision happened. In 2 Kings chapter 22, we're learning about the last great and righteous king that would ever rule Judah, King Josiah. And after Josiah dies, barely more than 20 years will pass before King Nebuchadnezzar's army attacks Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and hauls off most of the population of Judah to Babylon. There they will reside on unclean land, eat unclean food, breathe unclean air, and have no means to atone for their sins. King Yoshiao's father was Ammon, who was murdered after only two years on the throne. King Ammon had taken over from his father, King Manasseh. Manasseh then was Josiah's grandfather. 
And recall that Manasseh was the most wicked king Judah had ever known. At least, that was the case for the first 49 of his 55-year reign. But in the final six years, he had a complete change of heart. He ruled as a righteous king. The contriteness, the sincerity of his turn towards the God of Israel is reflected in the prayer of Manasseh that is recorded in the Apocrypha. However, most modern Bibles used by the Western Christian Church have removed the Apocrypha due to an edict by Martin Luther in the mid-1500s. And I'm going to say without reservation that while Luther did many good things, the blatant anti-Semitism that he developed later on in his life so tainted his views that it resulted in him making some terrible doctrinal decisions that have haunted the western branch of the church since that time and most Christians have no idea of it. It has materially changed our Bibles. It has changed the nature of what is available for believers to learn about our faith heritage. And it's deprived us of much needed context for the decades leading up to the birth of Christ in the New Testament. Let me also define a term for you that I use often. Western Church. You know, it surprises many believers to learn that the brand of Christianity that most of us practice is only one of several. There are two main branches of Christianity today. Western and Eastern. Catholicism and Protestantism are the primary representatives of the Western branch, with the Anglicans arguing that they are the, the middle ground in between those two. And the various Orthodox Christian denominations, like the Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Coptic, Syriac, Chaldean, and others, represent that Eastern branch. Luther had no effect on the Eastern branch since he was a Roman Catholic which was the Western branch. He tried to reform the Catholic Church to his viewpoints and the result of his failure to do that was that his followers adopted some new doctrines that developed into Protestantism. So in the, so in the Western Church one generally is a follower of Catholicism or one of the hundreds and hundreds of variations of Protestantism or Anglican. Now as we get ready to open our Bibles, please remember that we have to look further into the Holy Scriptures for a proper understanding of the era of Yoshiao, Josiah, than only the book of Second Kings. Second Chronicles 34 and 35 adds a great deal of information, as do the prophetic books of Jeremiah and Zephaniah. Now we're going to continue to incorporate some of it in our study. So when we left off last time, <clears throat> we saw in 2 Kings 22 that in his 18th years the king of Judah, Josiah, set about to refurbish the temple that had been so shamefully neglected. <clears throat> Excuse me so misused for many decades. But 2 Chronicles 34 informed us that many of the reforms that he undertook took place in the years that were leading up to 
that decision to repair God's sanctuary. So, we'll return now to 2 Chronicles 34 and read about that temple rebuilding project and the discovery of a scroll that changed Josiah's life. Please note that this is substantially, but not entirely, the same as what we read last week in 2 Kings 22. So open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles 34. 2 Chronicles 34. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page... Well, we're going to start on page 1219. Because we're going to start with verse 8. <coughs> Excuse me. We're going to read from verse 8 to the end. In the 18th year of his reign, after he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shphan the son of Atzaliau, Maaseah, the governor of the city, and Yoach, the son of Yoachaz, the recorder, to repair the house of Adonai's God. <clears throat> then he went to Hilkiah, the high priest, and handed over to him the money that had been brought into the house of God, which the Levites who guarded the doors had collected from Manasseh, Ephraim, the rest of Israel, all Judah and Benjamin. Then they returned to Jerusalem. They gave it to the supervisors of the work being done in the house of Adonai, and those doing the work in the house of Adonai used it to repair and restore the house. That is, they gave it to the carpenters and the construction workers to purchase worked stone, timber for the cross beams, roof beams for the houses which the kings of Judah had destroyed. The men did the work faithfully. Their supervisors were Yahat and Ovad Yao, Levites from the descendants of Merari, also Zechariah and Meshulam from the descendants of the Kahatim to give uh, direction, and other Levites, all of whom could carry singing with musical would accompany singing with musical instruments. They supervised those carrying the loads and everyone doing any kind of work. And there were also Levites who were secretaries and officials and gatekeepers. Well, while bringing out the money that had been brought to the house of Adonai, Hilkiah the priest found the scroll of the Torah of Adonai given by Moses. Hilkiah said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the scroll of the Torah in the house of Adonai. And Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan. Shaphan the secretary brought the scroll to the king. And turning to the king, he gave him this report. Your servants are doing everything you ordered them to do. They have poured out the money found in the house of Adonai and handed it over to the supervisors and workers. And then Shaphan the secretary told the king. Hilkiah the Kohen Hagadol, high priest, gave me a scroll. And Shaphan read it aloud before the king. And after the king had heard what was written in the Torah, he tore his clothes. Then the king issued this order to Hilkiah, Achiam the son of Shaphan, Avdon the son of Micha, Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah the king's servant. Go, consult Adonai for me and for the people left in Israel and Judah in regard to what's written in this scroll which has been found. For Adonai must be furious at us since our ancestors did not observe the word of Adonai and do everything written in this scroll. So Hilkiah and those the king had ordered went to Huldah the prophet, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokat, the son of Hasrat, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in the second quarter of Jerusalem and spoke with her about this. 
And she told them, Adonai, the God of Israel, says to tell the man who sent you to me that Adonai says this, I am going to bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants all the curses written in the scroll they read to the king of Judah because they have abandoned me. They have offered to other gods in order to provoke me with everything they do. Therefore, my anger is poured out on this place and it won't be quenched. But you are to tell the king of Judah, who sent you to consult Adonai, that Adonai, the God of Israel, also says this, In regards to the words you have heard, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before God, when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, you humbled yourself before me. You tore your clothes and you cried out before me. I've also heard you, says Adonai here. I will gather you to your ancestors. You will go to your grave in peace. Your eyes won't see the calamity I'm going to bring on this place and on its inhabitants. <clears throat> so they brought back word to the king. Then the king summoned and assembled all the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, and the king went up to the house of Adonai with all the men of Judah, those living in Jerusalem, the priests, the Levites, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing everything written in the scroll of the covenant that had been found in the house of Adonai. The king stood in his place and he made a covenant in the presence of Adonai to live following Adonai, observing his mitzvot, his commandments, instructions and his laws wholeheartedly and with all of his being so as to perform the words of the covenant written in this scroll. Then, after he had all the people in Jerusalem and Benjamin stand in affirmation of it, the inhabitants of Jerusalem acted in accordance with the covenant of God the God of their ancestors. Yoshiao removed all the abominable idols from all the territories belonging to the people of Israel. He made everyone in Israel serve Adonai their God and throughout his lifetime they did not stop following Adonai, the God of their ancestors. The words of verse 8 explain that after he cleansed the land, after he cleansed the house, meaning the temple and its grounds, that Melech Yoshiao, King Josiah, finally ordered the temple to be extensively repaired. So the idea is that in Josiah's mind, step one and returning Judah to a right relationship with the Lord was to get rid of all the idols, all the altars to the false god, those who led the people to worship these false gods, and to perform all the Torah-prescribed purification rituals to remove the defilement caused by these abominable objects and actions and people. Step two would happen once step one was completed and step two was repairing the temple. Now while the temple and its earlier counterpart the wilderness tabernacle were real and tangible and every rule and regulation every piece of furniture all the rituals prescribed for it were to be scrupulously obeyed. In fact all of it was also a shadow and a representation of some heavenly principles that would in time be played out in the lives of the followers of Jesus Christ. 
Thus, when we see what Josiah did, we see a pattern for humanity that's meant to be followed. The temple is God's dwelling place on earth. And Paul tells us that believers are essentially God's temples because His presence, His Holy Spirit, dwells in us. And when one who has yet to submit to God finally makes that decision, we come to Him battered, broken, full of corruption, confusion, uncleanness, and sin. We are essentially in the same condition as were the land and the people and the temple of Judah and Jerusalem prior to Josiah. And the first thing that has to happen is that we must recognize our condition and understand what we must do to remedy it. The next thing is to accept that remedy. Then to go about cleansing our lives of all the idolatry and perversion and confusion and uncleanness and sin by the only means available to us, faith in Messiah Yeshua. But that faith must be accompanied with action. Otherwise, it's a meaningless faith. When Josiah began to refurbish the temple, he had already cleansed it some years earlier. It was already rid of its defilement. It had already been re-holified. It was rededicated to the God of Israel. It was suitable for use. From a spiritual perspective, nothing more was needed. However, from an earthly and human perspective, God's house was in disrepair. It was unsightly, and people were dissatisfied with it. We hear of no directive from God to greatly beautify this temple. Its disheveled condition primarily hurt the sensibilities of Joshua, the priests, and many of the leaders of Judah. It's like that for the new believer. The outward scars of our previous sin and rebellion before we came to Christ probably remain visible. Perhaps the circumstances of our lives haven't changed substantially since that saving moment when we first believed and turned our lives over to God. And we struggle maybe to make ends meet or establish meaningful relationships with people. But that makes us no less clean, no less saved, and no less valuable in God's eyes than if we were fortunate enough to have had most of those scars cosmetically covered over or have had the roadblock to relationships with people removed and now our lives look solid, even something perhaps to be admired or or, uh, envied. God can use us either way because what matters is our spiritual condition before Him. Are we clean and purified by the living water? Or are we unclean and distant from God's presence? The temple repairs that Josiah wanted had nothing to do with God's spiritual perspective. 
This was an outward beautification project for the benefit of the community. And we should not chastise, we shouldn't shake our heads at at Josiah for this. God didn't condemn Josiah for it any more than he commended him for it. This was the classic case of morality versus preference. It was immoral that the temple should be defiled and that the behavior that went on there unauthorized and unclean. So Josiah attacked that problem with the greatest zeal and in accordance with God's Torah, he remedied it. But it was a preference. It was an acceptable human choice to make it prettier. The temple refurbishment was also a symbol of change. And, And humans are visual creatures. So outward change is often needed to symbolize inward transformation. But let's not confuse the two issues. Remember that God never even wanted a temple, let alone a grand one. He was satisfied with that simple mobile tent he had ordained through Moses. It was David who had this expansive vision for an opulent temple. What would have happened if Josiah had gone about this the opposite way? How about before he cleansed the land and the sanctuary of idols and false gods and pagan religious behavior, he thought that step one was to beautify the temple. In fact, that is precisely what many people try to do when they supposedly want to turn their lives around or say that they're going to trust God from here forward. They think that before they fully submit to Christ, before they get rid of all the defilements and perversions and unclean ways in their lives, first they'll make themselves look better. So instead of donning Christ, they don Christian lingo. They carry a Bible, wear a cross around their neck, go to church, they hang out with Christian people. They stop swearing and talk nicer. They donate to charity. But in the end, they're only a prettier, but still empty and defiled temple. Clean on the outside, filthy in the middle. Pleasing to the eye, unusable by God. Josiah had it mostly right. The king assigned the temple task to Shaphan, Maaseah, and Joach, Joash, who were government officials. And they went, went to Hilkiah, the high priest, and they gave him the money that had been collected over the years at the temple. And the money was then in turn handed over to the construction supervisors to purchase materials and to pay laborers. And for emphasis, the end of verse 11 lays the blame for this ramshackle condition of the temple squarely at the feet of the kings of Judah because there it says in 2 Chronicles 34.11 that is they gave it to the carpenters and construction workers to purchase worked stone, timber for the cross beams and roof beams for the houses which the kings of Judah had destroyed. 
Second Chronicles tells us something that Second Kings 22 doesn't about those supervisors. They were all Levites. Even their clans are mentioned. And that makes sense because Levites were to care for all the necessary functions of the temple service. But Second Kings adds something that Second Chronicles leaves out. In chapter 22, verse 7, these particular Levites were so well trusted that no accounting of the huge amount of money spent and, and used for these repairs was required of them. Their integrity was above reproach. Thus the project didn't go to the lowest bidder. Pagans weren't used to repair God's temple. And only the most trustworthy and faithful men were given the authority to carry out the task. The king put the right people in charge and he allowed them to use their God-given gifts and abilities and their own judgment to bring about the king's vision. That's a formula that needs to be remembered. It needs to be considered as we go about the Lord's business. But then one day, something astonishing happened that was going to change Josiah's legacy. As one of the many rooms and appendices to the temple were being repaired, someone found a scroll. It was an electric moment. They may not have understood exactly what it was, but they knew it was important. They gave it to the high priest who took one look at it and was overjoyed at what he had found. Both 2 Kings 22.8 and 2 Chronicles 34.15 agree precisely on the words of Hilkiah as he reported his find to Shaphan, the king's representative. The complete Jewish Bible says it this way, I have found the scroll of the Torah and the house of Adonai. Almost all other Bibles will say that Hilkiah said this, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Now this nuance between these two translations is not only important, but in many ways it opens a window for us to view the way that Christianity and Judaism has historically looked at the Old Testament and why we must repent of this as followers of the God of Israel and change. In the original Hebrew, it says that it was the Sefer of the Torah in the Beit of uh, Yehovah that was found. Translating Sefer to book or scroll is fine because it can denote either one. But translating Torah to law is a tragic error. It was also it has also brought on some of the most silly and needless debates about the nature of what was indeed found, and I'll get to that in a moment. Next, bait indeed means house. So that translation is sound. But finally, Yehovah is not Adonai. It's not Lord. It is Yehovah, or Yahweh, or in English, Jehovah. Lord is not God's name, but Yehovah is. Lord is a generic title. Yehovah, or Jehovah, is a formal name. Did you know that the Canaanite word Baal 
means Lord. Thus, Baal translated to Hebrew means Adonai. Adonai translated to English means Lord. And indeed, if the word Adonai was there in the original Hebrew in the verse we're examining, then we would be right to translate it to English as Lord and then deal with the consequences. But that's not the case. The original Hebrew is Yehoveh, yud Hey vav Hey. And by the way, this isn't disputed. So here's my point. First, it is Hebrew tradition, which became Christian tradition, to mistranslate God's name Yehovah into Adonai, Lord, theoretically as a sign of respect. But in the end, this good intention has caused enormous misunderstanding of the scriptures and sent us down many rabbit trails that were unnecessary. It also serves to confuse when we're talking about the Father and when we're talking about the Son. Thus in modern Christianity, things that ought to be ascribed to the Father are often ascribed to Christ and vice versa. But second, this mistranslation, mostly by Gentile Christians, of the word Torah to law actually changes the meaning of the verse. It obfuscates what it was that was actually discovered by these workmen and then handed over to the high priest. First of all, Torah in no way means law. Torah means teaching or instruction. There are a number of Hebrew and Aramaic words in the Bible that is most often translated into the English word law. Hoch, dot, Keom and Torah. And while there are subtle nuances in meaning among these words of Choch, Dot, and Keom, they all better translate to statute or decree. Saying law in this instance isn't exactly wrong, and in modern English it's probably close enough. But in translating Torah as law, it's way off the mark. And it misses its entire point. It is a straightforward mistranslation that scholars are well aware of. But their denominational creeds won't allow them to correct the error. Because it is well understood what might happen, what it might mean to a whole series of their foundational doctrines that, have no, that they therefore have no interest in re-examining it. I'd say that around 40% of the time that we find the word law in our Bibles, the original word is Torah. With the remainder of times being mostly Chok, and then a few times Doth and Kayam. No, I've not done an exact word count, but I've looked at it close enough to see it in proportion. Further, from a technical standpoint, if the intent of saying law is as an abbreviation of the law of Moses, then it's really misleading to refer to the law of Moses as the Torah. In fact, the law of Moses is just a section within the Torah. Parts of it begin at Exodus 20. It's mostly contained in Leviticus with a repeat of some of it in Deuteronomy. 
mainly those commandments that necessarily change when Israel stops wandering in the wilderness and settles down as farmers and ranchers in Canaan. Further, there is the priest's code, meaning the rituals and organization of the priesthood that pertains only to Levites, as opposed to the civil code that is statutes and regulations that pertains mostly to the lay people. So what was it that the workmen discovered? Did they discover the law? The law of Moses? No! They discovered the Torah as the Hebrew plainly says. Now, was it all of the Torah? It's impossible to know for certain. And it's a fruitless debate among scholars fueled by nothing but egos and speculation because we don't get any more information about it. Now common sense says that at the least it was Deuteronomy for a couple of reasons. And the most compelling reason for this conclusion comes from the Torah itself in Deuteronomy 31. Because there in verses 25 and 26 it says, Moses gave these orders to the Levites who carried the ark with the covenant of Adonai Take this book of the Torah and put it next to the ark with the covenant of Adonai your God so that it can be there to be a witness against you. The thought among many academics is that Moses was talking only about the section of the Torah that we today call Deuteronomy. However, the context is such, it could just as easily mean the entire Torah, since Deuteronomy is just the fifth of the five books that forms it. Now, while I'm not dogmatic about it, my opinion is that it means the entire Torah, not just one section of it, because it says so. Well, nonetheless, Moses instructed that a copy of the Torah was to be kept near the Ark of the Covenant at all times. And tradition says that for many years that's exactly what happened. So why, in Josiah's time, wasn't the Torah just simply sitting there next to the Ark of the Covenant for him to refer to? And could it have been that this, was, this particular one was the only copy of the Torah that remained in all the land. And so to find it was startling and euphoric. Again, no explanations are offered, but there's no end to speculation about it. It does seem reasonable to assume, however, that apart from the Ark itself, there is no more precious holy item for the priests than the Torah. So after this long litany of wicked kings, the temple continually robbed and trampled upon by Gentile kings and pagan priests, and, and, and many of the precious items simply given away to pagans as gifts from Judah's kings or owed as tribute to some conqueror or another, it's unthinkable that somewhere along the line, in a moment of high danger, the priest wouldn't have taken the Torah and hid it someplace to save it. It was Shaphan who took this amazing find to King Josiah and he began to read it to him. And upon hearing it, the king began to tear his clothes as a customary sign of grief and torment. The probably near-universal thrill of finding the Torah suddenly turned to terror 
is Josiah, and no doubt Shaphan and all of those listening heard its words. You know, it's hard to know exactly what part of it that they were hearing, but no doubt it had to do with certain of God's laws and commandments and what would happen if they weren't obeyed. It is to Josiah's merit that he took those words to heart and he immediately sprang into action. His first move was to try to ascertain just what this might mean for his kingdom and how it applied to this current situation. So he issued an order to the high priest Hilkiel, to Shaphan who read the scroll, Achiam, who was Shaphan's son, Asiah, and a fellow that Second Chronicles says is Abdon, Second Kings says his name is Achbor. Anyway, likely all of these were present when the scroll was read to the king. And Josiah says they must inquire of God to see what kind of predicament they find themselves in. What if anything they can do about it? And whereas earlier the decrepit state of the temple was directly blamed on Judah's wicked kings, the blame for the trespasses against the Lord and the consequences of which so alarmed Josiah was now blamed on the fathers. This could only mean the royal line of kings of both Judah and Israel. And in 2 Chronicles 34.21, the king tells the men that the consultation with God is to be on behalf of Josiah and for the people left in Israel and Judah. So here we see a couple of things. One, <clears throat> Josiah sees himself as more than the king of Judah. Rather, like David, he sees himself as the king of all 12 tribes. In addition, even though Israel, the northern kingdom, is long gone, there are small pockets of those ten tribes who somehow remained in the land and Josiah regards them as belonging to him. But second, what's interesting to me is that Hilkiel the high priest is not the person that was tabbed to consult directly with God. And consulting God is a usual task for a high priest who does so by lots or by the Urim and Tumim stones. Rather, these five men, including Hilkiah, are to go as an embassy to a local female prophet named Hulda. And she's to give them God's oracle in regards to their inquiry. And as with many aspects of the story, we ask why? Why wouldn't the high priest just consult with God himself? Why go to Hulda? But we encounter another why that's also a head-scratcher. We know that Jeremiah was alive. And he was prophesying at this time. So why not just consult with him since he was the leading prophet of his time? Jewish tradition answers this by claiming, and this is a good one, that Josiah reasoned that a woman would be more merciful than a man. And so she would pray passionately for the annulment of the, the wrathful divine decree that she had been assigned to pronounce over Judah. 
Now, I think that's pretty far-fetched. What we can probably surmise is that Jeremiah was someplace else for some unstated reason, and Hulda was nearby, right there in the city of Jerusalem, and she was immediately available. She was a well-regarded prophetess. And so, there was certainly no wrong in the king having his men go to her to consult God for them. He was in a hurry for an answer, and who could blame him? Well, the Old Testament names three female prophets. Miriam, Moses' sister, Deborah the judge, now Hulda. And these prophetesses prophesied in eras hundreds of years apart. And, and I think we can see some substantial differences in what their ministries amounted to, but also some glaring similarities that surrounded them. Miriam operated in a difficult time and she seems to be a leader of women in praise and worship but not as a seer. There's no mention of her being a prophet in the sense of consulting God on behalf of Israel's leadership. Rather, she was a prophet in, the, in a different sense, almost as an honorary office because of her relationship to Moses and the leadership role that automatically came with it. Deborah's role as a prophet seemed to be mostly as a leader of Israel in a very dark time of national apostasy. She was not a go-between that we're aware of but rather must have accepted direction from the Lord in her decisions and grace as a leader of men. And she was at times given prophetic knowledge of certain victory in battle. Now Hulda operated in an extremely dark time for Judah. And indeed, she was more like the classic prophets of her day. She was a go-between. She was assigned to deliver oracles from God to his people, including, at least indirectly, to the king. Now to me, the common ground among these three women prophets is that they all operated during spiritually dangerous and bad times when Israel was in rebellion. And at a time when faithful men of courageous leadership were in short supply. All throughout the wilderness journey there was a dearth of male leadership outside of Moses and Joshua. All throughout the era of the judges, men shunned their duties as leaders. They had little interest in doing what was right in God's eyes, so the women stepped to the front. And now in these dismal final days of Judah, when the soul of the nation was essentially lost and wicked, and Jeremiah was somewhere else, a woman is called to be God's agent. And she answers the call. Now I mean no, no disrespect to any of these faithful women prophets. My intent is to demonstrate that they seem to be operating outside of their traditional female God-given roles because the men of their times refused to operate righteously inside of their traditional male God-given roles. It is not that women were somehow incapable 
of being God's prophets or very good leaders. Rather, it's that it was on the male side of the ledger that being a prophet and being a leader was to occur. But over and over and over in the Bible, we will find that the Lord is no respecter of persons. If one refuses to answer the call, he'll use whoever will. So I'm going to end today's message in this way. It sure seems that a lot of women are taking leadership roles in the modern church. And I believe it's because they have to. Because too few men are willing to step forward. While some women may relish this role, most of them do it reluctantly because they're not wired that way. I've also talked to many faithful women who may not be leaders at their congregations, but they're the spiritual leaders in their homes. They're the ones who insist on going to worship service. They're the ones who organize and attend Bible studies. They're the ones who volunteer their time for the good of their church community that they fellowship with. They're the ones who see to it that their children learn God's word and then urge them on towards a relationship with our Savior. Most that I've talked to would give anything if their husbands would take that job from them and would assume the role of family spiritual leader a role that the Lord has given to men as our responsibility since the time of Adam and Eve, and he's never taken it back. I must tell you, it does my soul so much good, and I am grateful that we have many faithful men in this congregation who step forward and do what men are supposed to do. Lead your families. Teach the knowledge of the Word to your children, to your wives. And for the men who might be ignoring some or all of that responsibility that is expected of your walk with Christ, so you forced your wives to pick up the slack, or heaven forbid that that role just goes unfulfilled in your household, I ask you to pray earnestly about it. To repent and get into the game And ladies, it's not that you aren't capable of assuming these roles and doing a great job. You have been. You are. And unless something changes, you will be. For as long as men refuse to do our part. But what concerns me the most is that it seems, from a biblical perspective, that what is happening when women are being pushed into assuming the role of prophets, and I mean that in the sense of teachers today, and as leaders of the family, and often even leading men in spiritual matters, it's because men are saying no to God. And that is the sign that we are knee-deep in a dark time. Next week... We're going to examine Hulda's prophetic response to these men's inquiry and what it's going to mean for Judah 
and for Josiah.